0: N E T S U I T E dot com slash WTF. <laughs> All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, ears? What the fuck, Tuckians? How's it going? Uh, I am Mark Marin. This is my show, WTF. Welcome. Welcome to you newcomers, to you first timers, to you regular visitors. Thank you for joining me today. This is a big day. It's a big day, people. We've been leading up to this day for a while now. Yes. Yes, today is Lorne Michaels' day. Lorne Michaels is my guest on WTF Today. And and, uh, those of you who listen to this show know that's a pretty big deal. Some of us, myself included, I didn't know if it was ever going to happen. But it happened. Oh, it fucking happened, people. And also, I want to tell you this. There is a companion piece to this episode. If you have a Howl premium account, you can get a special WTF episode called Lorne Stories. It's available now, and it's two hours of stories from throughout the history of WTF with more than 20 past and current cast members of SNL telling their best stuff about Lorne to me because I asked. Why did I ask? Because I have... Or had I'm going to put it in the past tense now? A slight obsession with a meeting that I had with Lorne Michaels in 1995. All right. So if you have a Hal subscription, you can get this uh, this special episode. If you don't have a Hal subscription, go to howl.fm FM and use the promo code WTF to sign up for uh for like 3.99 a month. Okay. Twenty people from SNL over the years. I talked to about Lauren, like looking back on it. It's amazing. Like how obsessed I was. It ebbed and flowed over the years. And this whole process of interviewing Lauren, it sort of came up. I was in New York. I was invited to see the first episode of this season. I'd never been to a taping of SNL. I, I, I would not go. I, not that I was ever invited, but I had a couple of opportunities over the last, you know, two decades to maybe tag along with somebody to go, maybe my old manager, Dave Becky, or somebody. But because I was resentful and I felt like I'd missed an opportunity to be on that show somehow, I blame myself sometimes. Sometimes I blame Lauren. Sometimes I blame show business. But anyway, I went to the show and it was it was sort of an amazing experience. I waited, I, you know, they sat us. And uh, it was, you know, Hillary Clinton was on, and Miley Cyrus, and uh, but I'd never seen the the sort of mechanics of it. It's a, it's a fairly intimate space. There's you know, there's chairs set up on the floor for the people that sit close to the stage. It looked like an alternative comedy venue in that way. And then there's all these sets, and then you're up in the balcony, and there's just it seemed like fifty people moving things around. There's an electricity to live television, but when it came right down to it, it was just. Funny people on the stage doing their shit, trying to get laughs in that room, which was a much smaller room. There was a there was a humanness to the experience that I that I never really realized or noticed on TV. Just because of the amount of people involved in the production and the pace of the production. And Lauren is walking around from set to set doing things. I saw Steven Spielberg was there that night just hanging out with his family. Name dropping aside, the the mechanics of it just on, on a human level is profound. So many people involved, and there's nothing else like that. It is its own thing that keeps operating in almost a theatrical fashion, like a community, like a town, a village, you know, for, for years, for decades. It was, it was touching to me. It made me have a respect for that for the process. It held a place in my mind once. and the, and the meeting with Lauren obviously held a profound place in my mind. <sighs> wow. This this is a cathartic thing for me. As you know, if you listen to this show, I've been hung up on this meeting I had with Lorne Michaels for the 95 season for for decades, for fucking decades. It's it's evolved and morphed and changed its position in my mind and how it, you know, how I feel about it or or how I see it. I've talked to every anyone who's been on SNL, who comes into this into this garage. I've talked about it because initially in my mind, you know, not only had I failed at getting a gig on SNL but I had assumed all kinds of things about the situation I you know I've had that that memory in my mind for so long and it, when it was hot and new I was like you know I got fucked or you know Lauren you know doesn't like me or Lauren you know is evil or Lauren is some sort of you know demonic puppet master or I was used to pressure you know somebody else into doing something like it, it was just a rabbit hole an ever-flowing rabbit hole of possibilities of ways for me to either think I was fucked or that show business was fucked. And But as time went on and I talked to more people from SNL, my 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 feelings about Lauren Michael started to shift because I had talked to all these people that, you know, that saw him as this human person, as this uh, uh, this creative guy, this supportive guy, this guy who who helps careers and, and shepherds people through things and also has a keen sense of comedy and television production. As time went on and I talked to more people, my sense of what happened in that meeting became less about me. And uh, I didn't like that shift in my mind. I liked keeping Lauren Michaels, this evil wizard who, who somehow shunned me and, and, and exiled me from a, a possibly much different career in show business, that he had that kind of power. And as time went on and I talked to people about it, I didn't know if it was even necessary to do it anymore. I know a lot of you are like, it was the white whale. Well, Ahab doesn't catch the white whale. And there were periods where I'm like, I I didn't even pursue really interviewing him. I made one phone call once a couple years ago to his assistant, Lauren, and said, does he know who I am? Would he be interested in doing this? And he and she said, he's out of out of the country. We'll get back to you. That was like a year or two ago. And I didn't really follow up on it because I didn't know if I wanted to do it anymore. I didn't know what I needed. I didn't know what I needed when I did the audition. I didn't know what I needed now. It was emotional. It wasn't professional, which I think played into it, into the reason why it didn't go well for me in the meeting. And also now. You know, what did I really expect from this guy? What what kind of closure was I going to get from Lorne Michaels about this thing that had been sitting like a benign tumor at the heart of my memory, you know, for, for what, two decades now? But now you know, now I have my opportunity. We talked about everything. Let me just set the scene a little bit. So on Monday, my, my interview was for Monday, and we were to show up at 6 o'clock, uh, Lauren, uh, that day, uh, was, you know, getting pitches from the writers with the host who was Amy Schumer in a room. And then he had to go meet Seth Meyers for dinner. I was sitting in the same place I was in 1995, waiting to see him, uh, for my meeting with him to be on the show but it, it was completely different right out, right out of the gate. Like there was the couch, there was a table that was all in place, but there were several desks and several people in the area outside of Lauren's office. In my mind, it was just a door. There was a desk and that was it. I think I may be confusing my real memory with that scene in King of Comedy where Rupert Pupkin is just sitting there with a woman uh, waiting to see Jerry Lewis. And then uh, there was Lauren. I see Lauren and, and I'm struck immediately with this m- moment of like, Oh fuck. He's just a guy. He's just a guy, he's a man. And this is his job. He works here. He runs this place. I walk up, I say hi. You know, I say hi to Higgins. He gives me a hug. I've got my recorder on. We walk into the office and Brendan's gonna set up the boom with the cord. And I'm standing there holding my recorder, and Lauren is there, and this was the first thing he said. And 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 I think this will this will set the tone of the interview you're about to hear. Sorry to delay, come on in. Yeah, it was a reasonable delay. Yeah. The scene of the crime, you were here before. Did you remember? Of course I remember. Yeah. But, but, okay, good. What is established with that little soundbite is you know, right off the bat, he, he was definitely aware of what was going on. So now here is uh, here's some time that I spent talking to Lorne Mike
1: Yeah, I remember because I saw you on stage. You
0: saw me, yeah. like, yeah, Marcy had seen me somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And I came in here. It's a very loaded experience for me. Well, of course. I mean, people uh, believe I'm obsessed with it, and I guess we can start with it. Okay. I came in here. I waited an hour or so. Uh-huh. Uh, Tracy Morgan was out there waiting with me. Do you his- know
1: what day of the week it was where we, we were in production?
0: Uh, maybe. I, I I wish I remembered that. Yeah. I, you know, I decided before I got here, uh, I was smoking a lot of pot at the time, but uh-huh. I thought maybe I shouldn't smoke too much. Uh huh. And I got here and Tracy Morgan was there and his hair looked very shiny. <laughs> the, yes. the hair was in very good shape. Yes. And I waited a while and I was reading a Bruce Wagner book, I remember, and I came in here. And had, st- had
1: he been on stage the night that you performed? Tracy? Who, Tracy? Yeah.
0: I don't know if he was. I mean, I know that we went to um, stand-up New York.
1: Right, I remember. Yeah. Anyways,
0: I come in here. In my recollection, there were books over here. Uh-huh. Was there?
1: It's probably pretty much the same as it always been. Right. Yeah. Steve
0: Higgins was there. I walk in, and you said, um, uh, how was Conan last night? Did they laugh? Did they laugh at you? It's better when they laugh. And that was nice. It was nice. I was scared. And you'd done and you'd done Conan the night right. before. Right. Yes. Okay. And then I sat down and then uh you you did you used a zoo analogy for uh-huh. comedians? Have you yeah, used yeah. that
1: before? Monkeys <laughs> and all that. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a regular thing.
1: But no, it wasn't a regular thing. It was just my sort of beginning to piece together where comedians stood in Hollywood.
0: Right. The 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 lions are scary. When
1: you go to the zoo, Yeah. The first first uh thing you want to see is the lion because the lion is the king of the jungle and uh and uh it has it's regal yeah and uh the second thing you want to see are the bears because right. they're the strongest and the fastest right. and the third you want to see the monkeys because they're funny and occasionally one of them jerks off
0: right and yes. what i said i don't think you had added the jerk off line because uh-huh. i said as long as they're not throwing their shit at you yeah Got nothing,
1: yeah. Got no laugh from you. Well, I would have gone softer as you saw,
0: yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. And and Steve Higgins was like, "Mm." (laughs) 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 This is not going well already. (laughs) And did you know Steve before? Kind of, I'd met him once or twice, like on the scene, right? And then you just looked at me for a little while, uh huh. And uh, and I and and Steve actually went, Lauren. And you said, it's um, it's, uh, it's important to look in someone's eyes. You can see a lot uh-huh. in someone's eyes. And then I was trying to exude uh-huh. some star quality of some kind, right. which was not successful. God, you really remember this. <laughs> yeah, I remember it. Yeah. And then I, there, in my recollection, there was a smaller bowl of candy. And uh, yeah, that's the yeah. Tootsie Roll one, but it, yeah. it's a Jolly Rancher in my mind.
1: No, it would've would have been Tootsie Rolls. Well I remember yeah. I took one and at yeah. that
0: moment you shot a look at Steve and, and I thought I'd failed the candy test.
1: Oh yeah, no no there was no candy test. <laughs> there was no no alternative candy. There was just the one. There was popcorn probably there right. or there. No, you know? I didn't get popcorn. Yeah. Though. And that was sort of like um,
0: the my experience with it, and uh-huh. then I waited, and it, and and nothing happened. And I'd heard a couple of things over the
1: years. I'm not hung up on this. No, no, no. But where would where were we in '95? Was this when when Norm being... was
0: about was renegotiating his contract, I believe. And uh, and I, I'm not sure exactly who was on the cast. I think I was being considered for a an update commentator role. Maybe. Right.
1: No, I I remember that. Yeah. And but we're was had we already made the transition to like uh will Farrell and sherry and was it ninety five I think it was for the perhaps for the ninety six season so so that cast was already right. in place I think so and then Tracy was added in right yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Well, what happened what what I think that what happened was that it was a period in the show's history where uh the critical community and the network were on the same side, which mm-hmm. seldom happened. Uh, I think that um, Don Meyer who was running the network then, uh, we were getting killed in the press. The uh, we were in a transition away from the baby boom, mm-hmm. and you had people like Sandler and Farley, and and uh, and Spade, and and Mike Myers was just leaving. Dana had just left. Um, And so there was a sort of consensus. New York Magazine ran a cover on Farley and why these people weren't funny. Right. Uh, I think Don Omar felt it as well. I kept saying they're not playing to you. Uh You know, they're playing uh, pretty much to your kids. Right. Uh, That we were in the middle of a change. But uh, at the time, because the show was everything then was compared to the original cast. Right. It was like, they, did they fit Were they, did they measure up? And, of course, right. the idea that they were listening to different music, that they were different from a different time, uh, didn't get through. And, as I said, the critics were f- really fierce. And ratings were starting to suffer. And, by and large, it had begun, and also the movies had begun to work. Sure, uh, Tommy Boy was 94, right. I think, or we shot it in 94. Yeah. So, and... I don't think uh, he was a fan of Norm Mm MacDonald. But I was sort of, I'm always sort of looking for what I think are sort of original voices. And Mm -hmm. I thought I wouldn't have met with you if I didn't think you had one. (laughs) Well, that's good. Yeah. So there was no, uh, uh, it was just uh, not my year. No, I think we were being pounded on a whole other level about, which was really existential at that point. Right. Uh, The critics were Saturday Night Dead. Uh, the network was. Uh, you have to change. You're too set in your ways. Right. Uh, and the, the the simple fact, which was that different generations come in and make the show their own, right. and that uh, they find their own way of doing it within the the same tradition, as opposed to uh, blowing it up and starting over and right. all that. So, and you know, uh, the thing about broadcast. Uh, is that you are on in all fifty states, right? And you know, in the way that the railroads united the country in the nineteenth century, I think sure. the networks did in this century. And, okay, and so you you know that the show plays differently in Arkansas than it does in Hawaii, or differently. Maybe I wasn't right. No, 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 no. You oh. were fine. Oh, you had your you had a strong point of view, and you were uh, clear. Right. Yeah. No. No. It, you were just part of a mix. It there was no, there was no idea of. So much replacement because you can only do that gradually. Sure, it was it was whether or not, uh, whether or not to bring you. I think we still had a Whitney Brown. No, nah, maybe he was gone. I I think that
0: like I think Spade might have just left. Right. Yeah, but it, it, it was interesting because at that time, remember, we were doing alternative comedy very much downtown. So. Yeah, because, because, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I mean no offense, but you said you you said one of the first things you said was like, I don't know what you think you're doing down there below 14th Street. Yeah, right. But it doesn't matter.
1: Right. <laughs> Is it? i was trying to be helpful <laughs> and, and and save you a few years yeah
0: uh, okay
1: yeah yeah well i appreciate no that. i was just being playful
0: i know yeah. yeah well i mean in retrospect i don't know that i was necessarily ready for the show and and i
1: came in here i don't think you're ever you need to have spent a certain amount of time on stage sure. to be ready for the show i think you were ready i think it was i didn't have i, I I learned early on that if you bring people in and there's no real spot for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spade used to, uh, I think, when we did the debate uh, with Bush Clinton. And yeah perot yeah dana did bush and perot and david was on the wide shot filling in as dana <laughs> dressed as perot so if you see the three shot of them <laughs> right. it's actually spade because dana can't be literally in both places but once we cut in yeah it's dana again right, you know? right. Like, yeah, so yeah, yeah. uh it was just tough for david to catch a break because dana was the writers will always go to whatever whoever came through for them on the last show. And so they'll go with the performer that they know can deliver. And it's just harder to, uh, unless you have some, unless you play some other kind of part or unless you bring some other kind of voice that's clear and can withstand uh, those first five or six shows when the audience is less than friendly. Well, that's interesting because it,
0: it, it, one of the things that I did say was how big of a fan I was of the first season. And I, and, and I was, uh-huh. I'd obviously mythologized them in my mind, and they meant a lot to me as a kid. First and, season or first five years? Well, the first five years. Yeah. Okay. okay. And, and, and and you said, well, we've had a lot of good casts. Yeah. Like very quickly yeah. sort of dismissed the whole notion that that, that was it.
1: Well, when I came back in, in 85, uh, I continually got beat up by the golden years, uh-huh. uh, and I've been there for all the golden years, and I can tell you that they were not golden at the time, because from the time Chevy left, in, which is the beginning of January of 77, Bill Murray and the and young Jim Downey come in together, um, those were the first changes we made, and and Saturday Night Dead started around then. Right. So we survived it, and the idea that the show will continually reinvent itself, and that you have to give it time, the living through it is not fun, if you're, if right. you're me, mm-hmm. uh, probably even less fun if you're the audience. Right. But, um, people have to be bad before they can be good. Dress rehearsal has to be bad before it can be good. Sure. Yeah. Let me, well,
0: let me, let's go back, because I think it's yeah. important. I mean, you grew up in Canada. Yeah. Yeah and was was what what was your family like what was your father do? What did he do?
1: um uh, my father died when I was fourteen, yeah, and uh my mother's parents owned a movie house, so I just started seeing movies at a very early age and uh around the kitchen table if they were talking about movies or felt strongly about jimmy cagney or something i i wasn't aware at that point that they didn't actually know jimmy cagney but uh uh it was sort of in the air and uh when uh we brought a very jewish yeah pretty jewish yeah a jewish by and large jewish neighborhood yeah
0: yeah because i have no sense of what the canadian jewish community was like
1: well it's different in every city i suppose Yeah. yeah but there was a lot yeah and and a strong theater community and a strong tradition of stuff. And this was in yeah. Toronto. This was in Toronto, Canada. And yeah. your name was Lipowitz. Then, yeah, yeah. Well, when I was, first, yeah, uh-huh. not not once I began to perform. Yeah. Right. Was what, yeah. what was your full name?
0: Lauren. Lauren Lipowitz. Yeah. yeah. And when did you start? Is it true? I heard this weird bit of information. Uh, is Lou Jacoby your godfather? Um. <sighs>
1: I think my mother told me something about it once. Yeah, that I mean, he and my uncle had had, had I think written songs together. Oh really? That, yeah. When, was when it, it was in Toronto. Yeah. He's a great
0: character actor. That mm. guy. He's a funny
1: guy. Yeah. what I what uh, my first trip to New York when I came down uh, by the bus from Toronto, I went. Uh, one of the plays I saw was uh, "Come Blow Your Horn," which was Neil Simon's first yeah. play, and he was in it. And I went. And my mother. me to go backstage and say hello and i did and he was nice to me and that's that
0: that's that but were you taken with being backstage or with the idea
1: of i i think theater um yeah i i think i just in the most broadest sense of it wanted to be in show business i think but i also sort of wanted lots of other things too so i didn't i I didn't have any kind of single-mindedness right about that i think. By 1967, uh, I was in that part of that generation that would have said, what I want to do is direct. Oh, you really? Know, because you saw sort of The Graduate. And, sure. Yeah, and you went, well, I'd like to do that. And, but you did some comedy. Yeah, yeah. No, I performed, and I did shows at, uh, in high school, and I did shows at university, wrote and direct. Yeah. Performed, you know, and performed with another guy, uh, Howard Pomerantz. You yeah. Know. Were you guys childhood buddies? no no uh, i did a show at the university uh called uc follies and he was he came to see me about his brother uh earl who went on to be a, a sort of very successful comedy writer uh who did stand-up and uh-huh. uh would, you know would i consider him for the show which i did and and for your earl, college show college show yeah oh yeah yeah
0: and that's how you and harpy came friends yeah and then well, he st- that's when we met. Uh-huh. And then
1: when uh, After college, after I graduated, I went to England for a while, and then I came back. Uh, what did you do in England? Uh, avoid going to law school, primarily. <laughs> uh, uh, but it was just a more... London in 1966 mm-hmm. was just a, a way more happening place than Toronto was at the time. And I'd, it was the first time I'd been exposed to... Uh, you know, life outside of where I grew
0: up—drugs, really. rock and roll. No, not.
1: I, I suppose that was part of it, but it wasn't so much that. It was yeah. just that um, I knew what I—I I knew I didn't want to go to law school. I didn't. I wouldn't have had the confidence to say that I could succeed uh, in show business, and they weren't really recruiting from Toronto at that point. Uh, in general, yeah, there was not a, a big trade ad. <laughs> We're say. the Canadians, yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> exactly. So um, I didn't know how you'd kind of get into it or or do it. And, and when I came back uh, from Toronto, I came back to Toronto from London. I Howard Shore, who'd been with me uh, in Toronto and who's one of my oldest friends, musical director. Yeah, he was a musical director. Yeah. Here's he my friend with three Oscars. yeah. yeah. He and I would write songs a little bit. I tried a little bit of that. Funny uh, songs
0: or no, real songs? Not real songs. Oh,
1: and uh, Did you sing? No, I mean a little bit in junior high, but not. no, no, I never thought of myself as a singer. <laughs> um, uh, Hart and I started sort of improvising and doing a little bit of stand-up together, and I worked uh, a little bit in an advertising agency, just sort of copywriting, and I was... Um, Just sort of looking around, and and gradually we sort of began to earn... We started doing a radio show on the CBC, 15 minutes, on Wednesday nights at 10. You and Hart. Yeah, Mm -hmm. which was sort of political in nature, and satire, as it was then called. We didn't know no one was listening. We thought it was really important, and we were really proud of it. We began performing sort of in clubs. Uh, We had a a, a sort sort of classic straight man comedy kind of you were the uh, straight man i was a, yeah i was the straight man or the serious one or the tall good-looking one whatever <laughs> whichever way you want uh, but definitely the straight man and um Hart came to new york i think he either saw woody allen or he met with jack rollins in some way we ended up sort of uh going down and, and uh to new york and and uh writing for him For his clients, no, no, for Woody, no, for Woody specifically, yeah. yeah. And uh, he was incredibly encouraging and and generous. And we would fly down, we'd meet with him for a few hours. Yeah, he was stand up then. Yeah, and then we'd uh, go back to Toronto. Were you part of any of his classic bits? No, 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 no. I contributed zero to his career, but he was really, (laughs) really helpful in mine. Oh yeah. Um, What did he say? I remember let me think it clearly i I remember suggesting a joke. this is from a another time uh it, it had to do with being obsessed by the idea that there was someone who was thinking the same thoughts at the same time and that you know tracking down the the doppelganger thing and tracking down that person mm-hmm. and finding him, but every time he called the line was busy right. Uh, which no longer applies. Cause, right. Uh, but he said, uh, that's a brilliant joke. And I think that probably kept me warm for a year and a half. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just the compliment. It didn't, right. it didn't do anything. And then we wrote some stuff for Joan Rivers, and then we did a little bit for Dick Cavett, which I don't remember where the These are all Rollins Joan. clients? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because I met with him when he was a very old man, and I somehow insulted him. He was a joy. Yeah, I, mean, I heard he was an amazing the, guy. Yeah,
1: and had worked, going back to Nichols and May, yeah, and yeah. Harry Belafonte. And, yeah, those guys were And had worked with Woody, sort of nurturing him when he was a stand-up at the bitter end and all that. Uh, well, that but, went back for, when management did that. Yeah, exactly. No, he had no interest in going to a meeting at a network. He no, that's right. He was happy at 3 o'clock in the morning, talking over the act. Mm -hmm. you know uh and was kind of an inspiring figure
0: and he did they he'd guide you into how did the tv opportunity with uh with heart come around for the Um, terrific what
1: happened was we did um we signed with uh william morris with Mm -hmm. a very young david geffen was our agent william morris and then really then material that we had written for uh joan rivers got sent out and i think our agent On the West Coast was Howard West. And uh, a guy from Toronto named Bernie Ornstein, who maybe knew us a little bit, maybe knew Hart, and his partner, Saul Turtletaub, were producing a show with Phyllis Diller called The Beautiful Phyllis Diller Show. And we got offered to be writers on that show. And we were there- In LA. uh, In LA, uh, which I could- talk about that for an hour but I'm not sure we want to spend that much time on it but your first trip to LA yeah uh, no first job yeah and we were in Burbank and there was all there was the Tonight Show down the hall and and uh, Dean Martin and uh, I believe Jerry Lewis had a show and Burbank was like a sort of Club right. of activity. Who you were know? who were your primary
0: influences? Who did you like to watch? I mean, when how were you? What, what what impressed you about performers? Which ones? Oh, when I was a kid, or, or just at this kid? time when you started working in show business? Oh, I think you-
1: that, that you know you knew that it was just the beginning of the of the change. By sixty eight, you know, I think uh, Bobby Kennedy had been shot. We were, yeah. you know, we were there, and it was, I think, I was. Either twenty three or twenty four, and I think the next oldest writer to me was fifty two. So we were working primarily with people who come up through radio, mm-hmm. and we're now had been in television for as long as television had been going. Right. Bob Schiller, who was one of the I Love Lucy writers, was very. All all of the writers were incredibly uh, encouraging. Uh, George Balzer, who'd written for Jack Benny, who was a, a huge hero of mine, gave me a bunch of Benny scripts to read, which were very thin because there was a lot of pauses. in Jack Benny, <laughs> they were radio shows. Yeah, so there was that generation was still very much in power, and uh, you know, I, I had long hair and a headband. You know, sure. so there was there was just and television couldn't have been farther removed from uh, what was happening. You know, music and film and all right. those things were, were starting to turn. and
0: yeah. yeah. television was a little. And, but then I think
1: because it's the mass medium, and uh, whenever when movies were the mass medium, they were very tightly controlled. And when yeah. uh, movies got freed by television, then I think they began uh, to loosen up. And I think television, up until really us in late night, and then cable after that, were pretty much. Uh, the way they'd always been. Well, what,
0: what didn't it take the uh, the idea that that the executives that were in charge at the time, not unlike uh-huh. the film executives, were like we don't we don't know what to do anymore, so they had to open the door a little bit.
1: Yeah, except that we went um, from the Phyllis Diller show, which we we were so young and we would I remember asking how it was going, they'd say it was going really well, and then our around show seven or eight uh, on our very first show, which was just. Uh, 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 we were against Barbra Streisand in Central Park yeah. and I thought we were going to get killed being from Toronto. They didn't if I remember right I think they did an 18 or 19 share and Phil Staley did a 41 share. Really? And that's when it began to understand how big a place America was yeah. and uh, people weren't following it as avidly as I was. And I think that around show seven or eight there were people in our offices measuring them, you know. Like for, <laughs> we weren't in actual offices; we were in trailers in the parking lot. Like, which was network the, was it? NBC. You so yeah, know I've, I've been in NBC most of my life. And then, did you like Phyllis? Oh, she was wonderful. Yeah, just wonderful. Yeah, and really generous with the writers. Yeah. and and funny. But we would go, you know, uh, literally to a. a, a a, a deli in in Burbank uh, called Kosherama, which was I think on Riverside. We'd go with all the the older writers, and they'd just tell stories. Yeah, you know. And there was a guy named Keith Fowler who'd written for the Honeymooners. Uh, Schiller and Wozkoff had written for I Love Lucy. Uh, George Balzer, as I said, had written for. Mm-hmm. So you had this sort of. These people who'd made a life out of writing comedy and, and wrote jokes and wrote sketches and uh and episodes and understood character. So on one hand I'm learning that and on another hand the you know uh, everything's changing. And you worked for Schwatter as well? Yeah, no, then when Phil Stiller got canceled, we got a job on Laughing, which was in its first season. And that was the that was the turning point,
0: right? And that was the number one show. Right. Yeah. But that was the counterculture starting to be integrated. Yeah, a but
1: bit. but think think of this. Yeah, uh, laughing was on Monday at eight, as was Here's Lucy, and they were both often tied for number one, which meant half the country. This was when forty million people are watching. Right. something. So forty million people are watching Lucy, and forty million people are watching laughing. Laughing. Laughin. So uh, it's a. There's always two Americas in that regard, you know, and... Uh, but you could feel that, you know, that the creativity was shifting. Oh, yes, and and I think that it wasn't a, a particularly fun show to work on for us. We were never we never went to the studio. Why? Uh, the writers worked at a, at a motel. In motel, sweat garage? Like no, 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 no. We were treated kind? well and yeah. paid well, and, yeah. and George Schlatter was encouraging. It's just that Paul Keyes, who was the head writer, uh, the way it worked was... Not the way I was expecting it to. I, I I sort of thought it would be more not quite copping and hard on you know out of town, but but some sense of it was much more factory. Right. So uh, we we would write things and then uh, they would be rewritten and then uh, they they'd do them and then I think Carolyn Raskin was her name would. Who was in the editing room? She'd sort of put the shows together. George kept the energy up in the studio and got performances out of everybody. And it was very much, I'm sure, his vision. But we were actually brought in by Rowan and Martin because we did two man comedy. So we wrote a lot of monologues, mm-hmm. you know, the team dynamic. Yeah. And they were funny. They were funny, uh, but, but it was also the sort of thing which was a little demoralizing because quite often they read them off the cards for the first time, and there was no audience. Oh, really? Yeah. So you kind of went, "Oh, right." So <laughs> it was entirely <laughs> you couldn't get the satisfaction. No, I mean it wasn't. <laughs> writers were part of it, well, yeah. But um, you know, and and I think when I came here, I wanted. Uh, to sort of do it differently, so I wanted the writers to follow their pieces right to the end, right, and that and sort of became the template.
0: So after after um, Laughing, you went back to Canada and did went the back Hardin, to Canada, yeah. But went back, did hour. A, a
1: couple years, yeah, and learned that. that do the TV
0: yourself, yeah, yeah, and 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 the structure of that show was a variety show.
1: That was a variety show, but more probably influenced by Laughing, right? There, it was a different title every time. One was called "Today Makes Me Nervous." There were like a lot of. Uh, Do you ever look at that now? Do you have When was the last I time you looked watched it? I look at shows it? I did a month ago, so <laughs> it isn't. Uh, Are you friends with Hart? Yeah, yeah. I I did. T- I talked yeah? to him oddly enough. A couple uh, last week I think. Oh yeah. yeah. When I was first beginning here, I I he he didn't like L.A. Right, and, and more, I didn't work for his family, and he was older than me, and he had kids. Yeah, and we we did those shows, and Hart was way more of a performer than I was. Sure. So I noticed we were in the editing room, I was learning how to do that, and I'd see myself before the slate, and I'd be preoccupied, checking lighting, checking things, making sure things were right, and then the slate would happen, and I'd be smiling, and I realized, oh, the other guy is more me than that, than that guy. <laughs> um, but I knew, you, I don't think you can produce comedy unless you've been on a stage, you know, and I think for a lot of writers who come out of print, or you know, even even a lot of lampoon writers, they're much happier with animation. Oh, really? Because they, they have more freedom. Well, the, the performers do exactly what they're told. You know, <laughs> like you don't have to go through the medium of somebody who's popular for a whole other set of reasons.
0: Right. Yeah. And cater to his personality. Yeah. Or we doesn't yeah. like that, or right.
1: think that was funny, or he embellished that joke, or right. he got the timing wrong, or. He did it, you know, uh, there's a human part yeah, of it yeah. that, uh, that, that doesn't uh, go along right so right well the, with control. Right. Yeah.
0: So what was the relationship in, in terms of putting that first cast together with, uh, with the National Lampoon Radio Hour and, and the Canadian talent that you had? How'd that, I mean, I know you've probably covered that before, but... Really?
1: You think? <laughs> well, we don't even have to. <laughs> it's a, no, no, I'm, I'm good. I can talk about anything.
0: But yeah. I because it, it, it seems to me like your intentions were were fundamentally creative at that time.
1: That Oh hundred hundred percent. No, I, I, I had done I was uh I had done three years in LA before that. I was living at the Chateau Marmont. Was it uh, nice then? No, it was kind of run down, but, yeah. it, it, but um in your twenties. Yeah, yeah. 27, eight, 9. I had my thirtieth birthday at the Marmont, in the lobby of the Marmont, which was one of the first parties they allowed uh, after really yeah it was kind of a, a deal but so that was um, changing too yeah and also what do you mean it was kind you of played a deal? By like, month you had, a, you had a fight for the party no 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 yeah. it was just a uh, it's a whole other set of stories but I think that they were uh, it was just it ended up being a lot of people there because all of the people who were doing what what I was doing or attempting to do what I was doing were uh, were vaguely knew each other. They ate at the same oh, right. restaurant. So the guys
0: like from the committee, maybe or like I, yeah,
1: I knew I knew lots of people from the committee. Carol Androsky in right? particular. but it was also you sort of knew where you. It was a you small community. It was right. a small community, but I was I was writing for television. But the person who changed my life was uh, Lily Tomlin, who I was going to go back to Canada. Uh, I'd come out. Bernie Bernstein started to be my manager. I met with Lily Tomlin about doing a special. I showed her some stuff I'd done in Canada that she liked, and I think it was a period where I was probably more lost about whether I'd be able to do the kind of thing I wanted to do, and she was very much a kindred spirit, braver than I was. We had coffee or something, and then uh, I got offered a job to work on a special, which Oddly enough, Herb Sargent was the producer of, which was at CBS. It was like, like, twelve weeks, and so I called the people from Canada and said, "I'm gonna." This was, I think, in the summer. I won't be back till middle of November, and it became, "You have to make a choice." Right, Bernie wanted, Bernie was on. I don't think he was happy that I was going to work that long on something, but with Lily, yeah, and he had. Uh, there was a Mama Cass special and a Gleason Carney reunion special, and uh, I remember thinking, you know, because I love the honeymooners, sure. Uh, but I did. I I went with Lily because she was again just pushing it and also uh, brave. And I met well, I met so I met Richard Pryor through her, and and we did that special, and I wrote a couple things, and it was nominated for an Emmy. The show did, they used to do pilot specials then. Mm-hmm. And the idea was if the pilot did well enough as a special, then they would order it to series. And CBS didn't order it. And then ABC approached us and she called me. And uh, Jane Wagner, who uh, was also writing on that first show, she wanted the two of us to produce it. And so she went to ABC and said, and put my name forward as you know a producer. I'd done the job in Canada, but writer producer. But now I was going to be in America for Little longer In America Conway. and approved, right? And um, and that was huge. And that show did win an Emmy, uh, and probably was the reason I had the credibility at such a young age to be hired to do SNL
0: oh well that's amazing yeah and have you thanked Lily for that
1: yeah many times yeah. Not, <laughs> every time recently not. yeah yeah <laughs> all right so let's
0: uh, because we have somewhat limited time but uh-huh. when you bring when you brought together that first cast I guess my question is is that you know having I, I saw the show the other night uh-huh. I came yeah, as yeah. your guest yeah. and I'd never been to the show uh-huh. not because I was bitter or no or no no, for no any understand.
1: Other it's tough to get tickets yeah it is yeah, and
0: yeah. I, even if I have friends that can't yeah know, me, no no I know and Then yeah, can help me d- yeah, yeah exactly but uh, but I was surprised that, you, you know at, you know you're still very involved you're yeah. you're out there and I was amazed at how many people were were involved in moving things around it was very exciting mm-hmm. uh, and you know I talked to Louis before I came he says oh it's going to be great it's always a great time to go to Saturday Night Live and I felt like uh, you know I I missed uh, missed something yeah because at some point I was like I'm not going to Saturday Night Live but. The intimacy of it uh-huh. and the immediacy of it, and and uh, and it's still fundamentally exactly the same exa- as it was the first show. Yeah, yeah
1: and you—that's a, a, an, an interesting question. Why did you keep it here? I think that what happened for me was basically when I got here, there was. There were it was 1975 and there were deer running through the hall at Rockefeller Center. Right. You know they they were showing me potential offices and they were on most floors, <laughs> and uh, I settled here on 17. But for the first few months, I was on the fourth floor in the office of a former programming guy named Larry White, and when I got the office, it was a plant that was. Bone dry with one leaf, a big, tall plant with one yeah. leaf left. And inside the desk was like Hill and malox tablets and a, and a couple of racing forms filled out. And I thought, this is not, you know, uh, I'm not in California anymore. But I knew and, and fought for a lot of pre-production time. So I spent three months rounding up everybody who I thought uh, would be good. And I knew some. I, knew, the cast. I, I brought my friend Howard down to, mm-hmm. to do the band. Michael O'Donoghue said, why would you bring someone from Canada to New York City? And I went, well, it uh, was tough to explain. And uh, he Marilyn was guy Miller, who had worked on um, on The Lily Show, yeah. said, uh, when you get to New York, you should uh, meet Michael O'Donoghue. And uh, he hadn't done television, but I, I used to listen to... I would drive in my car on Sunday nights uh, when I was living at the Marmont and listen to the National Lampoon radio show, which uh, I used to love. And uh, he'd been very involved in that. And so he and I and Ann Beats, who he was living with, we met at the, uh, they wanted to go to the Oyster Bar uh, at Grand Central. I talked down what I thought I was going to be doing. I saw um, Candide on Broadway guy named Gary Nardino who's an agent at uh, ICM said you should see this show because those designers are and I went and saw it and that was Eugene and Franny Lee and I met with them and I sort of described what I was going to do and they joined up and it was gradually sort of rounding people up. Gilda I'd known from Toronto and uh, From Godspell or before? Oh I'd I'd known them from that scene from Godspell but I kind of knew her more like even summer camp and that kind of Oh as a kid? Yeah well not as a kid but we didn't go to the same camp, but we sort of... I, I had a friend who'd gone out with her and whatever. Um, and, it's interesting to me how everyone kind of knows each other sometimes. Oh, yeah. No, and also I think Chevy had spent summers in Canada and within, and and I think John, Dan, Danny, of course. Danny I knew from Toronto. Uh-huh. Uh, he'd been on my show in Canada. Lorraine had been on uh, Lily's show. Uh-huh. And I sort of began just... And when I got here, Herb Sargent uh called me and and said, took me to dinner to Elaine's which I'd never been and uh, he was really nice and had lots of advice but he was probably 25 years older than I was had been the head writer on the tonight show with Steve Allen you know and and was the sort of the most elegant name in New York television and uh, the next day he called and he said I want to come talk to you and he came into this office and I said uh, we talked And he said, I want to do your show. And I said, Herb, you can't do my show. One, because the top money is $700 a week. And two, you know, I I just don't think. And he said, well, I don't care. I'm in. (laughs) He wanted to be part of something new. He wanted to be part of something new, yeah. And I didn't know then what couldn't be done. And also because I was the same as I'd always been, which was. I wanted to do this. I wanted to do that. I wanted to do music. I wanted to do, you know, films. I wanted to do the news. I wanted, to, as my father once said, my eyes were bigger than my stomach. So mm-hmm. he took me to a restaurant to learn that once. He let me order everything that I said I wanted and then it all arrived. But, <laughs> um, but I found that I was slowly beginning to, and I knew that doing it live, there wouldn't be a pilot. Right. So, and Herb Schlosser, whose idea. It, it really was to do a, a live show. He was uh, an NBC guy. He was the NBC. He was head of the network. Yeah. And Dick Ebersall, who I'd met uh, while I was doing Lily's show, who was out a little younger than I was and had worked for Runal Island at ABC and, and had just landed this job as, you know, head of late night at NBC. I, by this point, had agreed to do a movie at Paramount. I was going to write a screenplay. Um, so you were a writer guy. I was a writer. I, I yeah. earned my living as a writer sure. by that point for yeah. like seven, eight years. I had the meeting. He's, he described that he was going to do a bunch of pilots in late night, You know, asked me if I'd do one. I didn't really think it would get in the way. And then uh, one night I, I came home uh, late to the Marmot and there was a message from Dick to be at the Polo Lounge. The, this was at 2 o'clock in the morning. To call him and then to be at the Polo Lounge at 7 in the morning for a breakfast meeting, which was... Not something I was in the habit of doing. <laughs> right. I did have breakfast, but not normally till about 9 o'clock or 9 Okay. But <laughs> yeah. I showed up, and the, and Dick had briefed me a little bit before. It was the head of programming and the head of talent, a guy named Dave Tevitt, who was a, a wonderful guy. The head of research was a guy named uh, Marvin Antonowski. And they. I described the show I wanted to do, which was pretty much this show. And uh, research proved that the audience that I wanted wouldn't be there at that time, because was Saturday night and everybody would be out. I think they just really wanted to look at me to realize that I wasn't crazy. Right. You know, it yes. was a sort of approval thing more than that. And then I came in, uh, and with Dick guided me through all of it. It was a labyrinth. But I sort of spoke to what I think was the board at NBC and explained what I was going to do again. And it took me three months to find everybody, And then we lived together for three months before we went on. And I knew from being a writer that you always write your last hit until you're actively discouraged from writing it by the audience or the the industry. So I began to let gradually people would just keep writing and then out of boredom they'd start writing with somebody else and then... A kind of cross pollinization began to happen and the material began to look like nothing else. Relationships were
0: solidified. Yeah, and it.
1: the the lamp, lamp, you know, uh, Michael, when I, when he met Aykroyd, well, I, 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 anyway, what? They, they were like, why would you, you know, uh, uh, because it was, they were all different cultures. They sure. were all, the only thing they had in common was that I thought they were all talented and funny. Yeah, and funny, yeah.
0: So this was the system that was put in place from day one. You stay, yeah. you stay here because this is the place where SNL is. Yes, this is where it lives, and that's that's the end of it. Yeah, it's and always we, been. The and place we're up here lived.
1: for three days, and then we go down. We do read through here on Wednesday, and then I move down to the studio.
0: And you just had the pitch meeting just today. Yeah. This is Monday.
1: Yeah, same Monday meeting at five o'clock, which has been there since right. the beginning. Yeah. So with wh- the host and with the cast and the writers,
0: I guess what I try to get out of people when I talk to them who's been here because of my own, you know. Mythologizing of you and of the show is that yeah I, I somehow you know it's got to be
1: awesome to be meeting me like this and talking. Oh, no, it's no, it's, no, no it's, I'm teasing. <laughs> no,
0: it's, yeah. it's I'm I'm happy that you know it's yeah. a very human conversation because right. you know whatever I experienced in 1995, right, for whatever reason, whatever happened, it, it loomed large in my head, not in, a, in a oh negative. no no
1: and and also you can't really explain bad timing
0: to no, someone. No, no, no. What yeah. I mean
1: by it is we were under assault. No, I got it, and uh so we weren't you know, everything we were doing was being scrutinized. Everything sure. was, and so it was like, uh, as I would, with, 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 as I have with lots of people, you sort of bring them in because, when I saw Bottle Rocket, I wanted to meet the ki- the guys sure. who did it. So the you, Wilsons? You're, yeah, and you sort of meet people you think are, uh, have something. Right. You know, you don't know, but they're moving around in your head. Sure. And sometimes there's a spot and sometimes there's not and right. that's sort of, Yeah, I'm okay with it. I'm I'm happy to talk No, 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 we're we're both here. Yeah, Yeah.
0: and so the, the, but the creative system, like, because I know a lot of people, and I've talked to a lot of people. I've talked to people that have been on the show a year. I've talked to people who've not been on the show, and people who've been on the show for 10 years.
1: Right. So, I I think you got the, I think the best thing that you could say about the show was the 40th anniversary. Not not so much you know when you do live television the one thing you can't expect is for it to be perfect right but that night for me watching all of the people who created and built the show working together and also being the audience for each other was as close to perfect as i was ever going to get because the feeling in the room was so warm and supportive and you realize that it's in the cliche sense it's a family yeah. And they're all they all you can't explain that experience of doing it, except to other people who have done it. And it's very know? intimate as well. Yeah. And yeah. and Spielberg was hanging around for some reason. I yes. noticed.
0: Yeah. Just he just dropped by.
1: Yeah, he's been a fan of the show since seventy five since probably when we did Jaws. Yeah, uh, which was the third or fourth show, but probably before that. Um, so he was just in town Hillary for his Clinton his premiere. Yeah. Well, she wasn't. She just didn't wander. No, yet. I know. No, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I know what it takes. Yeah, yeah. to yeah. Deliver a politician yes, to a, yeah. <laughs> a location. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. The, I guess the the, the transition from. Being a guy who made SNL uh-huh. to being, you know, one of the most powerful men in television. Right. At some point, you, you like, there's a bit in the, the, late in the book uh, with Conan, the, about Conan. There's a bit where you talk to that guy, Erwin Siegelstein. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That it seemed to me that that was when you were, you're giving your resignation. I was resigning, yeah. And he said something to you that, that seemed to define how yeah. you feel and how you see show business.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that there's a thing about broadcasters that you realize I, I we were I was shooting a movie once in the western part of Virginia. Yeah. Not West Virginia, but the western part of the state of Virginia. And there w we were at a Holiday Inn and there wasn't the only thing there was was a Pizza Hut for about a hundred miles. And in this Holiday Inn they had a big screen television. Mm-hmm. And uh in the Pizza Hut they had like a jar for black lung stuff. Mm-hmm. I realized that people came in and drove in to watch Monday Night Football on the big screen. And then they told me they also come in on Saturdays to watch SNL. And so I think, not to get grand about it, but I think that you sort of realize that, you know, when I was growing up in Toronto and there was shows coming out of New York, live shows... I didn't know anything about that. There was nothing like that in Toronto, but you sort of connect to a bigger world and you go, Oh, I'd like to be part of that. And I think for SNL, our, our strength has always been in the middle of the country. Uh, and people watch it and, and identify with it and connect to it. And so shutting them out because they're not qualified to watch or because, uh, we're going to just do things that, uh, Are so specific that they won't understand. Inside jokes. And also for me, there's something about uh, a variety show, which is a variety of comedy styles. Never has there been a consensus, as long as I've been here from the writing staff, about other people's writing. You know, the people who write dry stuff don't like the big, broad stuff. We do physical comedy. We do low comedy. We do political satire. Always, I hope, with some level of intelligence behind it sure. but people get snobbish they go well I don't like slapstick whatever that means yeah. and you go and you go well yeah no were you laughing because I saw you laughing uh, it's that variety of styles of big dumb comedy uh, it's how I almost when, at, at my peak seriousness which was probably having won a couple of Emmys uh, I think the at the end of the first season of SNL which I thought of as kind of my championship season because i'd written everything i ever wanted to write at least twice by that point uh i got three emmys uh one for writing and producing us, two for snl and one for a lily tomlin show that i'd done the year before and i and uh we started being taken very seriously but also we none of us knew that the show was happening till that summer sure you know because we were always here and i think that there was some sense that began of like oh well well i'd always thought what we were doing was important um but then you begin to be told it's important and your your thing changes and when and because i've been working with Pryor and and you saw the first season you know what that was and when steve martin first showed up and i'd known him a little bit as a writer or was certainly aware of him but he was A writer on Smothers Brothers when I was on Laugh-In. And I think there'd been a touch football game where the two shows... I caught a catch. That's why I remember it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. From Dan Rowan. But I think that what happened was what he was doing, which was so different than what we were doing, because we started to get... um, dark yeah not even dark but just serious or beginning to take ourselves a little seriously and then you saw and bernie said i i, I think you should really think of steve martin and i went ah uh, yeah balloon animals and all that right so but then he came and he changed the show and that in a certain sense that was the thing that that the first real big reinvention of the show after the 75 76 season to make it a broader show no just that it was a another kind of sensibility that different sensibilities would come in with different people who and did you the just show. let them fight it out no I, it, it never gets to that because the thing about comedy people is yeah. if you actually laugh yeah. and give it up for somebody kind of we we know it you yeah. know what i mean it's right. not it doesn't whatever you've been arguing once you start to laugh and you have to really love laughing you have to really be on the side of people who can make you laugh and you want to be around as many funny people as you can it it gets a little isolating and sometimes you can drift off but it is a a certain way of expressing yourself that that is just as powerful as any of the other forms and now you have The Tonight Show. You brought The Tonight Show back to New York. Yeah, that was You're the, the first... Of that, Night. that trip that I alluded to uh, earlier when I came down by bus. Yeah. Uh, uh, I had a friend who... Anyway, I got tickets to the... Uh, he knew a writer on the... He was working with an actress whose boyfriend was Dick Cabot and who, uh, who... They later got married, but he was a writer on The Jack Parr Show and it was The Christmas Show and... He met us downstairs online and gave us our two tickets and I I went into what is now Jimmy's studio uh, Betty White was on the show and it was so small you know it was I'd watched the Jack Parr show at that point you yeah know, it was uh through high school and it was like oh but it was also coming by the skating rink coming by the Christmas tree coming into that building coming all that was just Uh, It it was the same. It's pretty much the same for me now as it was then. It's amazing
0: to me that, you know, you've grown up and you've defined and created uh, the the medium that, you know, you've redefined. Well, you know, when I was
1: at University of Toronto, McLuhan was there. So, (laughs) yeah, uh, the, the, But he did say that you know we were leaving the industrial age and coming into the information age yeah that's mid-60s so all those ideas of what what can be done and how you can change the way people see things was sort of in the air and live being the oldest form you know because I'd grown up on all those Jimmy Durante you know Colgate Comedy Hour Martin and Lewis mm-hmm. all that live television we didn't much know was live but it had a different quality. And uh, the idea that that would then be the way, in a, in a new wine and old bottles way, that that's, that would be the way that you could carry on, that it, it wasn't going to be that it looked all shiny like what was happening in video and yeah. film. It was going to look, in a certain way, primitive and, and more relatable.
0: And raw and yeah, exciting. Raw. Yeah, I like we ended on McLuhan. Thanks okay. for talking, Lauren. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, and that that was the end of that conversation. Cuz what happened was he ran out of time cuz he had to meet Seth Myers for dinner and I and I didn't feel quite satisfied personally or otherwise cuz there was still a lot to talk about because you know with Lauren there was my personal problems <laughs> that needed to be addressed. But he's also a great WTF guest in terms of the history of comedy, his influence on comedy, his life in show business. So, so I didn't think we got to all that we had to get to. So we told uh, the assistant in the front office there, you know, like, look, he said we could, he, he would talk some more. So is there time for that? And, you know, if there is, you know, let us know. I'm only in town for another day. And apparently Lauren came out and said, make sure you set that up with, with Mark. And I went back the next night at 11 o'clock. You know he had been out to dinner with Amy, and this is something he does every week. You know he do, on Monday he does the the pitches for with the host, and then he goes out to dinner with the host, and then th- that night on Tuesday, you know they write till like two or three in the morning. So he was he came he met me at like eleven o'clock, uh, you know after he had dinner, and we talked for a second hour, and it was amazing. And uh, so this is that second hour. Enjoy the rest of my conversation with Lauren Michaels. <laughs> This is our second uh, uh-huh. conversation. It's now Tuesday. I talked to you Monday. Monday was the pitch the host day down the mm-hmm. hall. What yeah. happens today? This is Tuesday.
1: Tuesday is writing. Uh, there's a host dinner, With which his, I just came from, yeah.
0: Is that just you and no. her? No,
1: no, no. It's, it's uh, her. Uh, it was Amy, Amy's sister, and uh, cast. Okay. And some writers, yeah. And and now they're writing. Sketches. Oh, and some of them writing. While you're at dinner. Yeah. And and before and last night and whatever. And this is every week. Every week, yeah. So you do
0: the show Saturday night. You yeah. go to the party. You get home at 5. It, yeah. yeah. You sleep till all day Sunday. No, noon. Okay. Up yep noon, yeah. And then
1: Monday you come to work. Yeah. And Monday I have that meeting, which... You came after, uh, which is the host meeting the writing staff and and uh, people from the various departments, music design, right. etc. and and uh, the cast. And I go around the room and and ask, you know, people what what they're working on or their idea, or whatever. And it's sometimes very productive and sometimes not at all. But it's a signal that the week has started again and that we we're not talking about last week's show anymore right yeah. every week every week for about well, 35 not, uh, years yeah i mean there's you know a few, we have few a, years a, off a show, yeah no we have a show next week but then we have a week or two off and so yeah okay so i guess in, in instead of
0: you know going over stories that you've told a million times that you let's let's start like this when, yeah. when you explained to me why you know my situation was difficult at the time or i wasn't uh-huh. chosen you said it was i didn't fit a swat in your head so no, no, no!
1: I didn't say that. Kinda. No, no. What I was saying was, I saw something. Right. When I saw you, and, right, and I talked to you, yeah. and so you kind of put it in your head as when when something opens or when something is, you know, it's just part of. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Louis said <laughs> earlier <laughs> today we were talking about. He was talking about with Michael Jordan. Yeah. That the guy said, <laughs> "I don't want to tell his story," but that. He'd be thrilled. Th- the Trailblazers yeah. didn't pick him up, you know, mm-hmm. like in the draft. And they said we weren't looking for a power forward. Right. And I think you're just always looking for what you need to fill. Right. Well, that's
0: my question. Yeah. It wasn't a personal question, is that I assume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh-huh. that after. I the f- will, you know. Sure. That. Yeah, yeah. After the first five years of the show. Uh huh. You know, that whatever uh, you learned or whatever, you know, heartbreak happened there or whatever worked or didn't work, uh-huh. that some sort of template was set in your mind about how the show works.
1: The, the, how it worked. Who would be performing on it right. and who would be writing varied. But, yeah. Right. So in my mind,
0: you have sort of a, a Lorne-based commedia Della Arte <laughs> <laughs> in
1: yeah.
0: your so, mind. Certainly one way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and these slots will be filled somehow or
1: another. Yeah, except that you never, it isn't that you're looking for something, it's that you recognize it when you see it.
0: Right. So, and now that the, and I assume that the lessons that were learned that season, and we talked a bit about, you know, the the production designer and the stage and and the commitment to the space, and and there's a magic here for you, and, and you seem to be somewhat of a creature of habit, that, you know, this is your life, Right, yeah it was that, <laughs> but I keep coming back to that conversation you had with that executive who said that went upon your resignation said uh, look you, you know the contract is for a show, you know good or bad or moral judgments and that's not our problem yeah
1: he said um the uh, if you read your you know i I was uh outraged at somebody doing something and uh, having been lied to and Whatever, and I thought I was doing working really hard and doing a good job. And uh, he said, "You you can resign, uh, and we will keep the show on, and it will go on for as long as it goes on. And inevitably, the quality will go down, and you'll see that uh, the audience will, at some point, sense that, and they will drift away. And inevitably, when there's nothing." more and no no time can be sold anymore then we'll cancel it right and he said and and the thing you really care about will be gone and he said if you read your contract carefully you'll see that we asked for the show to be 90 minutes in length uh for it to have this many commercial breaks uh for it to be done for this budget but nowhere in the contract do we ask for it to be good uh if you are so I believe you said neurotic and driven that you feel you have to make it good. Well, that's, that's about, that's a good thing for us, but it isn't what we asked for. What we asked for was for it to be 90 minutes in length and to cost that X amount. And it is a way of looking at things where you, you put into perspective what it is you do and how much of it is what's being asked for and what you feel you have to do, mm-hmm. and I think that was uh, eye-opening because the show. I, I, there was a uh, um, a time when I wanted to do the Ruttles, right? Uh, because I the Pythons were big heroes of mine, and Eric Idle and I were friends, and he'd uh, done a, a part of his Rutland Weekend Television, which was like a three-four minute thing about the Ruttles, and I thought, oh, this could be like a longer thing, and mm-hmm. Mock Documentaries was a thing in Canada since 50% of programming was documentaries. Uh, The comedy version of it was just part of the culture. And uh, he wrote it. I I thought it was really good. And uh, I wanted to do it in one of our empty time periods. And uh, it was going to cost like $275,000. It's the 70s. I went down uh, to talk. To Irwin and said, uh, "I really want to do this. It's got and it's got the SNL people. It's got the some of the Python people. It's got you know. I think Mick Jagger will do it. George Harrison is involved in helping uh, Eric with the script, and I think it it'll be really, you know, I think it'll be good. And uh, I'd like to do it." And he said, "No." And I was so taken aback because SNL was like, it was like seventy eight, and we were like at this ratings peak, and people were, i mean we'd won Emmys every it was just and I was sort of uh, I was sort of stunned i went i left my office I came back up to seventeen and uh and then I started to get angry like you know so I called and I asked to come back down and he said uh okay and i went well how how could you I said, how could you say no to me on this? And he said, well, then you can do it. And I go, why would you put me through it? he said, because when you're in my end of it, no is always the right answer. You can only get hurt saying yes. So if you are if you say no 100% of the time, you're right 75% of the time. If it's really, really important to you, then you'll come back, which you did. And I went, really? You made me jump? But it was they understood how they ran their world. Right. You know, and, and what programming was about. And they would give you chapter and verse about how music was the lowest rated thing on television, a thing about music. And I don't think it rated terribly highly. I watched it. Yeah, no one. But the people who were already, I was trying to do what I thought was a, a sort of like sensibility, things that could be in our time period that were uh, that the same audience would like. Uh, a sort of unity of taste,
0: and this was a night that SNL was off. Yeah, and so that was a lesson you learned about programmers and about well, that.
1: Also, that that they were. Remember, in those days, you needed forty million people at this hour. Yeah. No, no, not in at general. Yeah, Steve Martin called his company Forty Share because that was what you needed to, to stay on the air. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Well, I mean, there were two big ones and one little network. Right. Yeah. Do you miss those days? Absolutely not. No, it was what that meant was that eleven thirty at night, replacing Tonight Show reruns, was just a low. Yeah, which is what we did was was just low stakes, right? So it didn't it didn't count in prime time. Therefore, there was it didn't impact anyone in the programming department. It wasn't the ratings didn't matter. When we came on, we came. They projected. a four rating, we came on higher, like a five rating, and then we sort of grew. So it was just an unexplored time period whether people would watch 11:30, and and just as AM radio had turned into yeah. FM as the alternative, we were now the alternative to prime time. So much so that it's Herb Sargent's phrase, "Not ready for prime time," players, but it was. The way we were defined.
0: And it was at that time, as we spoke of before, a little later maybe, that movies had already shifted you know, into uh, appropriating counterculture and youth values oh, of the yeah, time. the
1: movie, The studios had collapsed in the late 60s. Right. And so...
0: It uh, took another decade.
1: Yeah, and the movies, yeah. Took, took, yeah, we were the first, mm-hmm. but it didn't really infect prime time. I'm trying to think, if you would classify something with Mork and Mindy... Yeah, no, as, I don't think so. It was pretty mainstream. You know, sh- new shows right. kept coming along, and, right. and they used the talent that we would have... Uh, Showed them. Yeah, or yeah. that w- would have been part of what we were... The same sensibility. But you
0: guys were were taking risks. Yeah. And that was the difference, and that was the freedom you had. Yes. So I, I guess, in, in over time, as we talked about yesterday, you started to realize that, you know, the middle of the country, and that, you know, uh, affiliates... And whatnot mm-hmm. were really the the crux of the business,
1: yeah, it was holding an audience is
0: really right. the crux of the business, and that was a big audience, yeah, so at some point you you knew to get away from
1: more esoteric comedy, maybe. No, I think we always we always led with whatever we thought was funniest as we began, you know, like uh, I think it's like the third or fourth show Chevy wants to do. Gerald Ford because Gerald Ford had fallen Mm -hmm. on a runway and and it was sort of widely reported. And Chevy, who one of the first things I knew about him way before we went on the air was he could fall and he could make you laugh falling. It was just a part of what he did. He'd do it in restaurants and on the street and it was always, always funny and it (laughs) would always make me laugh. And so the idea of fusing those two things, his ability to fall and his he made no effort at all to look like Gerald Ford Uh, he just said he was which I thought was both brave and new you know because we now again have gone back to demanding that people look like the person they're playing but this was so confident and so uh, it it, it was just he was golden you sort of knew when he was out there that um, he could do anything
0: I looked forward to it. Yeah. now no. You waited for it. Yeah. You, when you were watching when I was 13 or 14, I was like, yeah.
1: I waited for it. Yeah. So that,
0: that confidence. And he had brilliant timing. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. yeah. And that electricity that came out of that group. Uh-huh. I, I mean, I think that in, in my mind, it must have. you must have realized something then, that there was a chemistry, there was a dynamic, there yeah. was an interplay between these performers, there was a rawness, there was an intensity, it was and, magic.
1: And also, you had a writing staff... And performers who all lived under the same roof. There was no distinction, and there was a closeness to it all. Yeah, I at mean, that point, yeah, you're very close to all of them, all of them. But also, everyone was pretty much. It was the thing about live is everyone needs everyone to the last minute. Yeah. In the movie business, you meet the writer before you start shooting, and then that you meet him again at the premiere. Right. And th- this was you need the writer because if they if those changes don't get to the cards. And you're going out and performing it, you're dead. Mm-hmm. So that person is essential to you till even after you're on the air to tell you what the changes are and how it's going and to work with you on it. The same thing with the prop guy. If he's not putting it in your hand just before you walk out because you've been doing a quick change, then you don't have it when you come out. It's like theater, and the the band has to come in on cue. So everyone's necessary until good night. And how is that not the biggest rush in the world? It is the biggest rush in the world. Yeah. And Every I, week. And, yeah. and, and
0: I imagine that, you know, on some level, whatever was planted in you,
1: uh-huh.
0: that feeling, must be something that's worth chasing for a lifetime.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, this, you know, last week was the first show. Mm-hmm. And uh, Phil Himes, who's our 92 year old uh, lighting director, who's been, it wasn't there the first year, but I think pretty soon thereafter, uh, was having an argument. About the shooting on the uh, second Miley Cyrus number, uh-huh. and he c- came to me to talk about it. And and the orchestra, you know, the band was playing the warm-up songs. The, Al Green was somewhere in the background, and you kind of uh, the audience was coming in. Michael Che was on stage doing a warm-up before Keenan and and uh, the yeah. girls came uh, yeah, out. I that, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and you kind of. Everyone still cares as much about getting it right. And I think you're and there's a level of excitement to it because you know, you know how many times I've said it, but but we don't go on because we're ready, we go on because it's eleven thirty. And that's the truth. And it, it took me forever to realize it because there's just a point at which you have to stop. You can't fix it anymore. Right. And then that becomes what that show was. And there's nothing else. I'm not, this isn't a, a, a bragging statement. There's nothing else like it because there's nothing it else. Just, like it. it just it grew into that and that's what it is.
0: It's amazing too and there is an intimacy to it and it feels like theater. Mm. And it feels like it's, like it's
1: you know, there's a lot of risk still. Oh, completely, yeah. And when it doesn't work, it's like an earthquake. It just yeah. is. Everybody looks around it each other everybody knows it kind of didn't happen it didn't ignite and it was a thing you cared about Mm. and then uh i'm sure every stand-up has the same thing like the thing that had worked three nights in a row and then it didn't kind of connect or uh but that's never a whole show no right but but it feels like it's a whole show (laughs) if you're in that sketch as it's going down and you know in the 70s when i was much more raw Certainly on Sundays, because the amount of adrenaline that goes through you is uh, is a lot. People would call me on Sunday and and they'd say, uh, and I really dreaded picking up the phone, and I'd, they'd say, "Well, I saw the show," and that would just like hang there. And uh, yeah, it was. I thought it was good. I thought that it was pretty good. Listen, you know, the thing that you did, uh, you know, did did you think that was funny? And you go, well, it was at dress rehearsal. If you'd been there two hours earlier, you would have seen it be funny. But somebody came in on the wrong foot. The camera cut was late. The Now the timing of the thing is off. It's beginning to unravel. And we didn't have the recovery skills then. It, was just, it would just start to unravel and then it would collapse. Mm-hmm. And you go, oh, because it was all about energy and timing. Right. And when you didn't have either... Uh it made you, no were, sense. you were in real trouble, yeah right, and so sometimes we'd get cut off in the minute, we'd have uh four minutes to do a seven minute sketch, and uh you could Dan Aykroyd and later Phil Hartman loved those because they could move that quickly uh, <laughs> right. and talk that fast, and you know, uh, I think it was Anne Beats who, after one of them said, uh it was a blow for surrealism, yeah, it just is. It didn't make much sense. It was fun to watch. You just didn't uh, know what it was kind of getting at. And and so I think the audience learned that that was part of it. Mm-hmm. And you'd see people at the beginnings of their career. And if they stumbled or uh, it didn't work, you were in some way still rooting for them. It and was were, forgivable.
0: And, anyway. and obviously in the first cast, as well as any other cast, there were there were performers that didn't show up as much that were, you know, marginalized for one reason or another yeah. or didn't perform to a certain level but were still involved. Yeah. you sort of felt that
1: and that that happens every cast. Yeah, and there's a thing that you learn where if they if the audience loves someone the writers are really really lucky. Right. You know, uh, sure. you can't you can't stop them from liking that person. They will go with that person. They will follow them into dangerous territory. The writers can Use that because you have at the center of it. Movies call it a star. We we call it whatever we call it here. But it is that thing where the audience, some level of trust has been has happened between that artist and that audience, and they will they'll show up and they will follow them. And when it takes a long time for the artist to betray that trust, if they make six movies in a row where they're not in any way that kind of... They don't do the thing... They don't right. bring the thing that the audience loved them for then after a while. But you have to really actively discourage them from coming after you've, right. you've won them. And some their people hearts. who, yeah.
0: who start here evolved out of that and took yeah. a lot of chances like Bill Murray. And oh, you, yeah, yeah, no.
1: And I think everybody here knows about taking chances. Sure. I think it's about staying true to who you are and if you're growing and evolving, I think the audience stays with you. I think it's when uh you it's when you send a signal that what they loved you for here doesn't much matter right to you anymore or then you, I think they they feel like they were or they don't maybe, like it they anymore. made a mistake. Right.
0: You know? Yeah. Yeah, there there's something about Eddie Murphy at this juncture that's a little like that.
1: Yeah, I mean he was probably It may well be the biggest star that ever came out of the show. Yeah, you know, and I wasn't here for that, so uh, it's easier for me to say. But right, but Dick was, and it was a phenomenon. It's happened many times in in the show, Um, and that then that guy or uh that woman
0: has the power to
1: uh, energize the entire cast, and also to, um, if that person is as connected as normally to the writing staff, they will find the, the person or persons who write for that voice and they will be able to soar. They'll be able to take, go into places that, uh, you know, superstardom. I, yeah. And also, but superstardom in our world, mm-hmm. it's a different thing. You can be a giant star on SNL and everyone, you know, watches it. So you, that, but you're leaving out like, 98 percent of the country you know so um it's a it's a certain kind of community and and i think our rating i think i may mention this yesterday our rating last you know for last saturday show is like you know uh six seven million households uh which is about where we were in the 70s that's and great. it's always what I mean by it is it's never was 40 million households. Right. You know. It's it stayed level give or take. It's the people who are interested in it are generally educated, uh, urban, yeah. I want to see suburban. who are the new people. Yeah.
0: So okay. So so you 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 talk about the writers a lot and you uh-huh. you know you, you respectfully and and you and you include them in all this conversation now i've talked to a lot of people that have done well on this show uh-huh. and i've talked to a few that uh that feel um alienated or hurt by the show right and none of them will say bad things about you yeah no no i'm
1: not i wasn't worried about that part. No, I, I think i think one of the reasons that the writers are so important uh aside from the fact that they write things is that they're never they're just as involved but they will never get credit. Mm-hmm. They'll get careers and uh, right. success, but there's something in the illusion of comedy that the people doing it are making it up as That's they go true. along. Even smart people think yeah, that. You watch Bob Hope. Yeah. The smarter people, I mean, this is show business history, but guys like Jack Benny, Bob Hope, George Burns always mentioned their writers. Right. And But most people didn't. They they couldn't bear the, the the idea that it they weren't their words right and so, it wasn't happening right then yeah, yeah right and so if you watched Red Skelton you didn't think he didn't it was all that yeah that was just Red being Red right but the idea that it was scripted they well, didn't
0: want to know no and, they, and smart people don't want to know like I yeah. noticed that during the writer strike you know yeah. when you saw all these monologists who would go out. And clearly we're doing 10-year-old <laughs> jokes.
1: Yeah. And and then you really saw. You I know. always like the writer's guild strikes because when they're picketing, they, they want the metaphor to be that they're like teachers. Right. You know, like hardworking people who are doing something really valuable as opposed to very well-paid people in terms of the normal and, and more power to it. You know, like fight for everything you uh, believe you deserve. But there's something in the metaphor where you sort of see the line of them and you go yeah <laughs> you're, you're still doing okay yeah yeah well yeah, it yeah you're not about, doing as well as right but yeah. uh yeah.
0: Healthcare and that other yeah stuff. yes yeah but i guess the question i was leaning towards is that you know there is a competitive nature to to the writing staff and and who aligns themselves with stars
1: to, to every part of the show yeah.
0: right and and some people believe that it's it's fostered, and you know, and uh-huh. in, 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 in talking to you, uh, you know, I, I have different, um, you know, I, I see you as a person, yeah, and and I see that some people I imagine would be hurt if they were excluded every week, yeah, every week, and and you have to deal with that, but I I imagine the reason why you let it go on or, or maybe encourage it to any degree is that's where you get the best performance.
1: Yeah, I I, I think what what it comes down to is if you're if you're leading or you're the you know in charge yeah then the moment that everybody believes that you don't want it to be the best show possible that you're playing favorites or that you're doing you're not in con- control or trying to please another you know constituency or not just about making it great um then you don't have the right to walk by them after you've cut their piece you know, it has to. I'm, I'm, when I'm scrambling between dress and air, I'm, uh, there are people I like more than other people, but I'm not, that's not part of it. Right. It's just what's working. If we move that later, will it, did it get run over at dress because of where it was? It, are the rewrites good? Uh, can so and so tighten that performance and pick it up so that it plays? And where should it play? So all those are moving parts. And I think, the nature of it is, people, even the most powerful people at any given point in terms of caste, will all play by the same rules. And uh, there's a, a moment in my ninth floor office when people come through the door; they always, uh, and there's like forty, fifty people in there, and it's smaller than this office. And their eyes always go to the board, which is at the other, <laughs> sure, on the yeah. other wall to see what's been and, cut There's some people who just have that shrug of like, do you believe this? I mean, how can that not be in? Uh, It killed the dress, and very few writers don't hear laughs at dress. You know, Uh, there can be silence, but they'll say, "I thought it played pretty well." Yeah, yeah. yeah." And and so there's just and then there's the variable of the host because the show only works if the host looks good. So you're, you're trying, you're balancing a lot of things and you're never going to get it entirely right. You are. Yeah,
0: I am. Yeah. So you like, you see your specific talent as being sort of the conductor.
1: No, no. I see my, my specific talent, um, as moving it forward, getting the best out of everyone that I can and, uh, encouraging a climate in which, uh, brighter ideas prevail and in which chance is part of it and uh encouraging people and discouraging people you know if if you tell me an idea and i think that's not going to play i'll tell it to you now if you're thinking he just doesn't get it right and i'm thinking i wrote it three times i've read it and read through 12 times it has never worked uh, and I know if I say it won't work they'll say he doesn't get it and so we'll and I have to fall back to well maybe this time is different maybe it will so we read it and then it flattens and you go yeah no why, were, <laughs> I'm why were we thinking so you can't discourage people from writing something but you can you can sort of let them experience it themselves and see why it doesn't work do you feel that the people
0: that that had issues at the show or struggled at the show Uh and eventually hit the wall uh that they would maybe have those issues no matter where they
1: were no i I, I, possibly but i i I can't hide behind that i think that there is a projection because i've been in charge from the beginning i think there's a projection that all power stops with me You know, so in times like the period when you showed up, when there's a whole other thing. You know, when Burbank has suddenly noticed us mm-hmm. and, uh, well, what are they doing there? Uh, you know, and, and they almost, it's a little bit like Imperial Rome. When there's trouble in Rome, which most of the time there is, they leave you alone. They don't come to the provinces. And we're like, <laughs> in, the, in the 70s, we were like, you want to cover SNL? You work six days a week and you give up every Saturday night? No one wanted that. And you try. go to New York. Yeah. But, if you were even if you were in New York, that right. was, was like, so I think that people think any decision that comes down is mine. And so the idea that there's people I report to or still uh, oh yeah, yeah, of course yeah, really? yeah yeah it's how it works
0: <laughs> but I mean, y- you've you know you've made yourself and many others fortunes you've redefined television you now have the tonight show right you're telling me that there's a guy that you that that can
1: say lauren what are you doing in when when uh a lot of stuff was going down in in the 90s warren littlefield who was then running the network uh running programming gave an interview and he said we're going to make a lot of changes at snl and and uh Bill Carter, who was interviewing him uh, in the Times, said, yeah, but not Lauren Michaels, and he said, I said everything. Right. Which was a signal to me, obviously, because I read the New York Times, uh, that everything was up for grabs and they were not happy and they wanted to make a change. They also had reams of research that proved that music didn't play on television and, and that we should be just doing comedy, just doing sketches. I go, but it's pace. You need something in between particularly live, you know, a comedy sketch to a comedy sketch, the people have to follow that. They're not going to, the piece isn't going to work. We're going to exhaust you, people. Yeah. And the a live audience in particular. And there was a reason why it worked. And, and uh, there's a, a quote from uh, attributed to Mr. Bulova, uh, which was, if it's ticking, don't open the back, Yeah, you know, and, and you sort of go, no, th- that isn't the part you want to fix. If you have people they don't like, on the show that you can fix but when you have people they like and and writing that they like and the the host is good and
0: everybody's happy yeah
1: i think you know amy schumer this week with the weekend yeah uh who's you know i i think had has two songs that are number you know i Mm mean it will be a hot show cuz it's also Amy at this moment. Right. You know. Yeah. And that's uh and the audience will be there I think. There's a difference between numbers and influence. And uh SNL always had that. Yeah. So the people who follow us which is primarily from the beginning uh the industry uh Hollywood. Yeah. Washington cuz we were always playing yep. to them mm-hmm. and um uh, and, hipsters. Kids. Yeah, or, or whatever. Sometimes hipsters, sometimes people who were no longer hipsters. Sure. Um, Sophisticated people. Yeah, I mean, Tom Davis said uh, once, I think in the 90s, he said that the original audience wanted to stay up and watch the show. They had kids now, and, yeah. and they'd smoke a joint, and when the show started, fall asleep.
0: Yeah. and uh, That seems like Tom Davis's personal experience. Yeah, well, I think for sure. Yeah, he <laughs>
1: devoted many hours to that. But I think... <laughs> That there's everybody feels when people say to me what the best cast was, yeah, almost invariably I can tell when they went to high school, yeah, you know, if sure. they say, right, Phil Bill right, Hartman, right. Dana Carver, you go, Well, you, yeah, and because in high school, you're you have no power whatsoever, mm-hmm. you have no money, you can't drive. You you know just staying up late is exciting yeah. and having your few friends over. That's when I watch nights. it. Yeah, yeah. And so you attach to a right. cast and and you you go those four or five years with them. Yeah. Well, you've been you've
0: been through about a hundred and fifty cast members probably. I, I'm not. Yeah. Thinking,
1: yeah, I don't keep stats now
0: on through you know and you've had amazing talent uh-huh. throughout all of it. Right. You, know, uh, you there was even a couple as you said in the years that you weren't here.
1: Oh, and and also there were a lot of people I saw. Um, Robert Downey Jr. this summer, and he was in the eighty five cast. Yeah, as was Joan Cusack. Yeah, they were brilliant. It just wasn't right, right for here at that time. But you got guys like you know, like
0: like Farrell, who is you know one of the funniest persons that yeah, ever yeah. lived yeah. For, for whatever reason, for sure, innately. Yeah, uh, Molly Shannon who yeah, was yeah. A genius. And no you know, question. It, yeah. and, and it seems to me that throughout it, you know, which is why we can't get into specific stories. Phil Hartman, you, you know, Farley, all of them. Yeah. That there have been, it seems to me that from the beginning there there has been this sort of current that you you seem to have a feeling for that you you, you want to happen that there's a, there's an electricity that can occur between people and with performers right that and, you're kind and, of chasing and get back. out of the way of it right yeah now you know from the very beginning I, I imagine that first cast was was as a young man you were all very, probably very close yeah and I, I imagine you, you know when you talked about living at the chateau and knowing that Belushi passed away there. That it, it must have been like a devastating heartbreak yeah. to happen to somebody that you loved and was part of that. Yeah. Now, as as time goes on, you know what are you know some of those liabilities of the talented, you know, can be excess and, yeah, and yeah. self destruction.
1: Right. How do you handle that? What are you willing to tolerate? Well, I mean, it's a, a point—a small point of pride that nobody's ever died doing the show right it's, it generally happens a couple of years after they leave the show yeah um and that's i think because the intensity of it uh leads to that yeah it leads to some kind of uh exhilaration and high and and maybe people want that to continue is it your drug the show no well you know my drug is uh uh I don't know it's wine. the show no it's, it's not it's not that i i there's something about the show that you know it's you're only going to get close you're never going to you're never going to leave going that one was perfect never never no not once you if you're from my side of things you're only see the mistakes you you see somebody take off and do and, and magically, which you enjoy. It isn't yeah. that, but you sort of see that the camera cut was late, or that that th- the guy was cued in too early, or that that joke didn't make it to cards and there's a stumble, all of that. And but it's a snapshot of what happened at eleven thirty to one. Sure. And so it's a different. It isn't like you go well. Now I'm I'm done. My work is done. There's just it's like a sport you yeah. play. Aside from that, yeah. Over the years, you've become very adept at the politics of show business. Uh
0: huh. You've you know you've become you've powerful. I'm, I
1: might have been adept at the beginning, but really go ahead. Yeah, were you? Yeah.
0: I mean, but I imagine that you know learning you know when to pull back, when to be aggressive, yeah, when to let things happen. Uh huh. And when I read the book about Conan, uh-huh. you know that, you know, you, you seem like the Buddha of that book <laughs> somehow. Yeah. Is there something you need to
1: do? Um, You're a lifer. You're a TV yeah, lifer. Yeah. yeah. I think I, I, I've probably done 20 odd movies. Uh, I was on the phone earlier with, with Tina Fey and, and Robert Carlock because we're shooting a retake, of, you know, a reshoot of, uh, of a scene in the movie that we all just did. And movies are something whether it's uh as simple as wayne's world or or mean girls or whatever the, the only when i was off in the period i was off i wrote with steve martin and brandy newman we wrote three amigos together Andy which newman. was um which was the better part of a year and which was one of the happiest periods of my life so i liked that um and i like music i like um i like being around that i don't Your buddies with paul simon yeah yeah you guys just hang out. I saw them today. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, but lots of there are lots of. Uh, it's just being around creative people. Uh, yeah, I guess being around funny people is important. Being around it's the best people. Yeah, and so I think, you know, this is a way that I got to spend my life. Uh, and the thing about talent is. It has to, for lack of a better word, ripen. It just needs uh, whatever Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours sure. are or whatever. So you sort of see people here turn the corner. Mm. There's that moment when something connects right, and they've seen it, and then the audience goes, "Oh, I always loved him." Right. you know um, no, And you can point out with, action, with data that they didn't, but yeah. uh, it doesn't matter because that, at that moment, they're no longer who they were, and that and, excites you. Well, there's something about it if you believe that what the writing is about and if if what you you can for me it's having a voice, having uh a seat at the table, whether it's politics or music or comedy to to be part of what's going on, what's happening that week, yeah, that time if you uh,
0: don't have that, do you find you're a sad person? No, I mean, am I like the
1: melancholy clown? No, or, I, no, no. I mean, I'll, I no, mean, no, but no, like no, if you no. weren't I, being I am, stimulated I, in the five years, I didn't do the show. Yeah, I never saw the show, not because of any sort of uh, defiant act. I really just, I thought, well, I was there all those Saturdays. Why would I want to stay home on a Saturday? Now, it it just is. I uh, there's a thing that's exciting yeah and thrilling about doing it and then when i'm not doing it there are lots of other things that interest me do you know i, I remember i worked for you at that
0: internet show this is not a test that beaterman ran i hosted yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah that when we were doing an internet show and no one had the internet yeah, yeah that was pretty exciting <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's a thing about being there too early. That's never good. I, I yeah. just I'm so I, close. I do it Norm. all the time. Yeah, no, no, no. I do it all the time. You go like, oh, right. There's no one here. Well, I, you know,
0: coming back to that conversation again, where the guy, no. he said uh, basically that whether you're here or not, the network will be here.
1: Yeah. And now it seems that you're going to be here. Yeah. No, and the network might not. <laughs> but I, I think, I, I. He said we, we will always be here because, uh, we are eternal. And I think on some level. That level, of, uh, that level of power is always there, no matter who owns the network or mm-hmm. who runs things. And I think uh, whether if you're Michelangelo, you had a pope, and I'm certainly not Michelangelo. Yeah. But do you know what I mean? You, yeah. There's always on some level a patron and uh, under whose, you know, whatever blessing you work. And so uh, you we still see yourself as an employee. Not as an I, I. I never saw myself as an employee, but I do believe that I work for someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you excited
0: that you brought the Tonight Show back to New York? I mean, I, I, very. I mean, that's a pretty amazing thing.
1: Steve Burke and and Brian Roberts and and Bob Greenblatt, who are the the Comcast people who came in. When I said about Jimmy that I thought he was, you know, we were doing late night, and 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 I said to to Steve Burke, I really want to do it in New York. He said, Do you believe he's the guy? And I said, Yeah, I do. Thanks for the question. And uh he he went, Okay, well then let's let's we'll do it. <laughs> and he flew out and he met with Jay on a Sunday. No one knew about it. And he talked to him and he he said, I don't know that our shows would be any better in the fall next year but I know that we have the Olympics and I mm-hmm. think we could launch it and I'd like to do this this the right way and of course we'll take care of everybody on your staff and all that and it was done with such elegance you know what granted you probably read the books yeah. from before but um when we said well we we need to get 6B into shape there was a complete redo of the studio. And Eugene Lee, who did that brilliant design of it, looks like it was there from 1955 mm-hmm. on. But it's that the acoustics were done by, you know, people from Lincoln Center came in. It was like a magical transformation into what the perfect television studio could be. And there was 100 you know, like 100% support. They're really proud of it. And it sent this signal that they believe in the future. They're going to be in the business. Right. They're staying. Uh, at a, t- a time when all the articles for the network business is over, and uh, and you go, well, what's going to replace it? Just more mm-hmm. fragmented stuff, <laughs> you know, smaller, and smaller audiences. <laughs> so we know that the the pipes work. You know, people mm-hmm. find Monday Night Football, they find us every week, they find the things they find. Right. And and every now and then there's a new show like Empire or or this year with uh blind spot that people everybody's talking about. And that is that's what are called hits. Yeah. And they don't happen that often. Yeah. And when they don't happen for a while, people go, Well, I guess this is over. Right. it just means there haven't been hits for a while.
0: So you're 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 a believer in, oh, 100%, in, yeah.
1: in the old model. Yeah, I, I'm a believer I don't know whether commercials is the answer. I'd I'd rather that they didn't try and do twenty six shows a year. I mean Jack Benny did thirty nine. Yeah. You know, uh, but there was a lower, less, fewer less people choices. in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think you know that sort of uh, HBO model of thirteen episodes of something—you can get anybody good to do it because you're it's not taking a small commitment. And there, yeah.
0: So you're just going to keep going until you what you can't uh, see or, you know, you, one day they find you wandering the halls
1: when uh, looking I decided for Chevy? I, just, I decided to do the I decided to do the 40th two summers ago because it was August and uh, my cell phone rang and it was uh, Kenny Mong who works here for years. Yeah. And he called me to say Don Pardo had died and he was 95, maybe 96 and uh, I had not done it retired a couple of times. And I said, that's just unacceptable. So he moved to Tucson. We would tape him there. We, you know, that voice was so important. That was that sound voice. Yeah. And, and, and the way that Derek Jeter to the end had Bob Shepard mm-hmm. and annou- announce him as he was, you know, coming out to bat, you go, those are just traditions that are part of things. And I went, he was the first person from that time who'd, he began here in June 1944. I'm not born, you know. And so I go, he'd been at NBC his, his whole life. Not that I, that was my goal, but there was something about if I don't do this 40th show, there, this would be the last time that that founding generation will all be there. Hmm. And so I did it. I, do- I doubt that I'll do another one, but it was, it was an amazing night because you sort of looked around and you knew every face. You know what well, was I amazing? Face, is how
0: yeah. quickly like, Dan and Lorraine dropped into those characters.
1: Yeah, That
0: was amazing to yeah. me. That they were just beneath the surface.
1: Yeah, I mean, Dana Carvey used to say, tell me anyone who's been funnier than they were on SNL after i don't think it's true because there's lots of great work after but i think for everyone there's that period when they struggle there's that period when they're finding their way and then there's that great period where they're just let me at them and whatever they got to do they're going to destroy you know chris that once again that cast of uh christian fred Andy, Jason, Bill, uh, Keenan. Yeah. And and then six people leave because it's their time. And then you have to introduce a whole new group of people and people go, "Well, they're not the ones we love." And you go, "Trust me. Yeah. Wait. You'll yeah, wait. Yeah. But it is painful because it's always and that's awkward. where you're at now." Yeah, well, no, I think I we we moved past that last year. I think we're solid now. But I used to say that all babies are ugly unless they're your baby. And uh, then after a while, three, four months into it, people go, what a cute baby. But it is, uh, when they first come out, they're not necessarily great looking. And that's, there's something to the audience's patience with us. Yeah. That they go, yeah. Somebody who used to review said, I don't, I'm not reviewing the new cast anymore. Because she said, I always don't think they're good. And then three years later, I'm, they are. Yeah. And you go, sometimes it happens immediately. Chevy was stunning how fast it happened. And he knew it. He knew, believe me. He, but, you know, he and I were very, very close. He, I, and O'Donoghue, would, uh, that first Christmas, because none of us knew where to go, we stayed here. We stayed in this office and we wrote. And we wrote the first show back, which was an Elliot Gould show, which won the Emmy that year. And that level of... We were all the, about the same age. Michael was a little older than us. But uh, John and Danny, Lorraine, Gilda, they were all much, much younger to us. It was like uh, six or seven years when you're 30 and someone's 23. A lot. You know, Bill Murray's 22. That, that you got kind of go... Right, well, you know, it's not your turn yet. You know, yeah. it's like you're only in sixth grade. <laughs> when you get to eighth grade, you'll be able to... <laughs> yeah. And I think that there was something about that time and the how deeply everyone cared about each other that is you're always trying to get back to. Yeah. And we do. And, you know, I have a family which is really... The, You know, as cliche as it sounds, the most important thing in my life. And you sort of realize that you don't have this in lieu of a family. You just have this and a family. Mm. And it's, it's a different feeling. You know, if you don't have one feeds the other, if you can't care about the people you work with, you probably are going to have a hard time caring about the people you live with. And I think the reason I was watching that Yankee game was because... There's something about when you watch team sports, you understand if you follow baseball yeah. why you need a third baseman. Because if somebody hits it in that area and you don't have anyone, <laughs> you're going to be very problem. embarrassed. Yeah, So <laughs> it's, it, there's something about knowing you need the others that uh, in order to be for you to be remarkable that's mm-hmm. a, that's a big deal
0: that is a big, a big deal. deal and it's something you learned later in life or you always i think
1: it? i always sort of knew it mm-hmm. uh, even when i was performing i was part of a two-man thing sure. or i was in plays right. or whatever i think what ha- because the show was in new york and because theater is here there's some connection in live television to the theater sure and also to cameras and, yeah and uh I don't know. I don't yeah. think this show could exist anywhere else. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful
0: idea. And you keep in touch with some guys. You and Mike are friends. Mm. And do you, you do you have relationships with a lot of the past
1: cast? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You still talk to like Dan and those guys?
1: Yeah, I talk Dan. Yeah, I, I may see Dan week after next, and what? and uh, I dinner with Christian the other night. Um, you love uh, them. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the, I think. The feeling is probably mutual. It man. is, I, I yeah. believe it is. If you did it right, it it turns out really well.
0: Okay, well that's beautiful. It was yeah. great talking to you, and I just want to say in closing because I I would be remiss if I didn't. I'm ready to re-audition. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that I'm at that place now. I'm, I'm fully formed.
1: Well, again, you know, we're 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 always on the lookout. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's an interesting thing when uh, when Chris Rock yeah. uh, told me about Leslie. Uh, she did my show before yeah and and, and amazing i go well how you know she says she, she's the funniest person i know funniest woman i know and i think you know and she's either going to work for you or she's going to work for at&t but she's the real thing and i went well how old is she and i think she was 46 and yeah. i went well that's uh well you know, have her come in yeah. but it is that thing of where that's not what you're looking for right you know our our ideal is something else and then you see it and you fall in love and you go she's great yeah and that's what i mean by whatever it is you say you're looking for is the brochure you know like what, what the real thing is is when you see it and you're blown away by it can you can you respond in the right way
0: right yeah right i get it i get it well that's encouraging I'm going to take that as a maybe.
1: Yeah, no, 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 and and you know, there's always there's parts floating around. You know. Okay.
0: Good. You know. Good. And, and because I have a lot of. And you will s- leave your headshot, of course.
1: Yeah. No, I haven't. I <laughs> yeah, brought yeah, I brought yeah, a yeah. bunch of
0: them. Uh, what do they
1: do now? They don't do headshots anymore. <laughs> do 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 headshots anymore. <laughs>
0: Everyone knows everybody. You just got to go yeah, online. Yeah, yeah. No, oh, right. that's a yeah. guy. There's no mystery yeah. to it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how do you feel that now? There, there's like generations of people that see this as 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 a goal. That you know that well
1: that that happened really in the 80s. Uh-huh. You realized that we were auditioning people who were had wanted to get here. Yeah. As opposed to rounding everybody up in the seventies where we got to find them. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you,
0: but now you, your casts are huge.
1: Yeah. Do you just, is it just sort I of think, like you I have think, an, a farm team and a, and no, I think it was because when everyone left in the seventies and you had to start all new, it was better to bring one or two people in every year. Uh, and that cohort were sort of connected to each other and yeah. then they would learn from the others. And then gradually, you know, John who Figure started out. last week, yeah. who, who's, you know, bright and talented, uh, you know, he's about the same age as peach, right? Uh, Pete's
0: 21. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this yeah. is a, this has been a, a pleasure for me. Also, I'm available to host. Yeah, I, yeah, there's yeah, a lot but, of,
1: well, if this thing explodes, you never okay. know, okay. Well, yeah. well, now I got to get promotion I, yeah. behind it. Yeah. yeah.
0: Thanks, Warren. Thank you. <laughs> So that's it. That was it. That was the experience. And it was a great one, folks. It was a, it was a great experience. And whew, what are you going to do? Not only did I get closure, not only, you know, by this point did, did um, you know, I didn't even know if I needed it, but it was great to have it. And also what I came away with was Lorne Michaels is a good guy. He's a great guy. I loved hanging out with him. He's got a job. He loves his job. He's been doing the job for 35 years. You heard the history of it. He's a creature of habit, but he loves what he's doing, and he's totally engaged with it every week. He's he's in show business. He's a producer of a show that's been on a long time and is very unique and done in a very specific way, and it's his life, it's his love, and yeah and that's that's who Lauren Michaels is. He's in show business and he's a guy and I had to, I had a great time talking to him. I want to thank Lauren Roseman from NBC and Abigail Parsons from my booking team for making this happen. Also the photo used in the iTunes artwork on this episode is by Frank Okenfels at NBC. That's all. you know the deal. no guitar today. no guitar today. big day.
1: Boomer lives!